Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the Cinco de Mayo 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Today, Deputy Regional Director for the U.S. Census 2020, Jeff Enos, overseeing operations in seven Western states, will remind us of our opportunities and obligations with this latest U.S. Census. In the second segment, Michelle Masaccio will talk as an affiliate of Transforming Justice Orange County about COVID-19 spreading in our jails as it spreads in jails throughout the nation. We'll be right back after a station break. My first guest is Jeff Enos, Deputy Regional Director for the U.S. Census Bureau of the L.A. region, overseeing the operations in seven states. As a survey supervisor, he worked on the American Community Survey, the Current Population Survey, and Survey of Income and Program Participation. During the Census of 2010, Jeff served as an area manager and later as an assistant regional census manager. Jeff completed his undergraduate degree in statistics at Brigham Young University. He comes to us today hunkering down. Is it at your home or in your office in San Fernando Valley, Jeff? I'm at, I'm at my office in downtown Los Angeles. As an essential worker there. Well, welcome to Ask a Neighbor, Jeff Ames. Thank you, Claudia. Looking forward to it. Well, first, you know, I'm asking everybody, and I'm going to keep asking because the, the questions are going to be very interesting in comparison with other guests. Jeff, how are you doing? I'm doing, I'm doing great. Um, spending a lot of time with my family when I'm not at work, so it's, it's, it's a good time to kind of where life slows down a little bit and um, you can reestablish or strengthen some of your, your, your friendships and relationships. So I think it's a, I try and look at the glass half full, I guess. Okay. So we're now at the May, 2020 mark. A lot has happened along the timeline of getting the U S 2020 census out. When did you apart from what we're looking at this pandemic at the moment, when did you know that the drama was finally settling down with respect to the composition of the census form because you had a printing deadline you had all kinds of deadlines going on last year so how did you know you had what you needed to work with so that's not something i really had to to focus on honestly working at, at a, one of our regional census centers we're, we're more focused on the, the field operations so that wasn't too much of a concern of mine. We were given the, the, the direction of, of getting the word out about the census and having people respond to, to the census form. That was our, kind of our big edict here in, in Los Angeles and across the, the Western US. Okay, well then, given that, that role there, how much attention, Jeff, how, many, how much, what kinds of resources have you been using to achieve the cultural competency necessary for all the enumerators and all of your staff? Sure. So first of all, we have over 300 
partnership specialists, and these are individuals who, who work and live in the communities across the, the Western United States, and their job is primarily to work to establish partnerships with local organizations, uh, nonprofit organizations, community-based organizations, local businesses, local governments, uh, local media, to build these relationships with those organizations to help us get the word out about the census the importance of the census and the importance of filling out the census. So that, that's one of the, the, the huge tasks that we've been involved with and continue to be to, to work with is work with our partners to get the word out about the census with these uh, partnership specialists that are, that are scattered throughout the, the Western United States. Uh, as far as our, our field staff is, we, we've been in the process of hiring, recruiting and hiring them and beginning to train them to be ready to go out in the field. We're planning on uh, resuming our field operations starting in June, where we'll go out and, and continue with the field operations to assure that everyone is, is counted. So when we look at, I know you said you weren't involved with the composition of the ballot, but of the, of the census form. I, I wanted to break it down in a few sections, and it's this is sort of cultural competency too, how do we assure that all constituents are adequately represented by ethnicity, by gender? How does that, how, because there's, there's remnants of the older forms that are carried to 2020. I was kind of thrown, like, for instance, when I got to the gender box to complete. It was a binary this or that, and I thought in 2020, we're we're facing a much more sort of a, a much much more sort of a complicated response from many. So it it is listed as male or female, and um, we do not we do not dictate how people fill out the form. They they fill it out of their own accord. Well, if somebody doesn't doesn't identify themselves, like what when some advocates and uh, activists talk about representation they don't see a box that reflects helps them self-identify their gender yes yeah, so, so the it is it's just the two options are, are male or female and it's how they self-identify it's their choice so then on to the ethnicity then um i wanted to know too how i mean you, you may have the same answer but in terms of there's the Latino or non-Latino, that, that can be answered. And then the choice of races that follow that also are very uh, problematic. I, I know from my experience with working with citizenship application forms, the N-400, it has the same kind of limits is how Latinos can self-identify race. So do you have, can you comment on, on those opportunities? So, yeah, so the Hispanic origin and the race question are two completely separate questions. Yes, yes. So, uh, Hispanic origin uh, is not tied to race. So, in other words, uh, someone of Hispanic origin can be of any race. A Hispanic origin could be white, they could be black, they could be uh, Asian, etc. So, um, and again, we do not dictate how people... Uh, self-identify it's it's up to them to to fill out the, the census form how they most closely identify themselves 
And so let's talk about the timeline. The deadline for completion has been extended now from July 31st to October 31st. Uh, but the key is that everyone has to complete the form with April 1st, 2020 in mind, correct? Correct. April 1st is the, the reference date. The reference date. Okay, thank you for that. So I, as I've been looking over what could possibly complicate further the enumeration of constituents all over the U.S., and we're, we're mainly concerned with Ask a Neighbor here about California and mainly Orange County, that I'm, I'm looking at this deadline of October 31st. It's pushing this time frame into a kind of a, one, a natural disaster season. There's wildfires that could be happening. We don't know. I mean, in, in other regions, there could be the seasons of, of hurricanes and that kind of a thing. And then I also take note of there will be a general election that will be competing for eyeballs and attention. So how are you reconciling all of those possibilities along with the pandemic complications that you're facing right now, Jeff? Sure. So the, the, the important thing to remember is the, the self-response has been available since March 12th. Yes. And we're already well over 50% uh, in California, actually 56% currently. So the, the key is to maximize self-response now. We want to get as many people, many, as many households as possible to fill out their census form now to minimize the number of households that are filling, filling out their form come you know, September, October. Come summertime, later this summer is when we will send out our census takers to visit those households that have not filled out their census form. But we okay. want to maximize people self-responding now. And we've already, we're already seeing people self-respond in great numbers. Again, over 56% for the state. And so that's actually ahead of the projections that oh, we it is pre-pandemic. Wow. What would you attribute that phenomenal exceeding your target? So the, the online response has been very successful, and we're actually seeing people are self-responding via the internet at a higher rate than, than we had projected. And, and frankly, our, our outreach program, we work closely with our partners, in, and I attribute a lot of that success to our, our, our partners who are on the ground who work with their, their constituents, with their customers to help them understand why the census is so important, that hundreds of billions of dollars every year are distributed mm -hmm. to communities across the country based on census data. Representation at the local, state, national levels are determined by the census count. So our, our partners understand that and they're helping their constituents and their customers and all the residents of California and the residents of Orange County understand that. And we're seeing, uh, particularly in Orange County, already 63.7% of households have self-responded to the census. You're, that's right. I got that information this morning, doing some more background there. So that is pretty phenomenal. So with the extension of the deadline to October, did the U.S. Census Bureau get additional resources for, for more work? As far, I guess I don't, I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, it's now it's a long, a much longer season of work, and of course more complications. But did the U.S. Census Bureau get 
additional resources to carry off this important mission. Got it, got it. I understand what you're asking. So our, our field operations have been postponed and it to start later. So the, the actually the length of the field operations has not changed. So the amount of employees that we're hiring, the amount of uh, time that the employees are out in the field is the same. Okay. So it, it hasn't put a, a strain on our operating budget. And, and actually the, the Census Bureau has a contingency budget for situations like this as well. Oh, good. And I, I did want to get at that is how, how uh, prepared. I'm, I'm finding it really interesting, Jeff, when I've interviewed people in all kinds of different arenas in government and business and that kind of a thing. And I'm, I'm amazed by how many are actually saying they were ready for the pandemic some years ago in terms of the, the fact that they don't have to change their protocol. But did you at the U.S. Census Bureau have to change? I, I mean, were you ready? Did you have like a contingency plan for something like a pandemic kicking in? First of all, the census is still going. Uh, the, the pandemic has had minimal impact on people's ability to self-respond. Correct. Uh, people can still respond online uh, at 2020census.gov. People can still respond via telephone at 844-330-2020. And they can also respond uh, by mailing, by filling out the, the paper questionnaire and mailing it in. So I want to emphasize that. And again, we're seeing responses online and actually slightly above the projections pre-pandemic. Uh, we have had to make adjustments, we have had to postpone, and that's been our contingency is to postpone our field operations. And actually our field ap operations already have social distancing built into them. Mm -hmm. The way that we train our, our uh, field employees is almost strictly online. Uh, the application process to apply for jobs is strictly online. Uh, the, the actual field operation, once the employees are in the field, has social distancing built into those, those procedures. So our employees don't need to be within six feet of, of the American public. And, and that's helped us move forward during this pandemic successfully. So we're looking forward to once we get back in the field in June to successfully completing our field operations. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, and my guest is Jeff Enos, Deputy Regional Director for the U.S. Census Bureau LA region, overseeing operations in seven states. So you're exceeding your target, and I, and I, I guess I want to just, I can weigh in the, with a personal experience. I think I completed mine about five, mm -hmm. six weeks ago, and it was it was very fast, it was very clear, and I, I, I guess from previous years, there were, there were short and there were longer versions of the census. Is the same thing happening in 2020? Uh, so I think you're referring to the, the short form and the long form that we did in 2000. Yes. Obviously. So starting in 2005, the Census Bureau, they replaced the long form of the census with what we call the American Community Survey. And that's a survey that we do every single month. Uh, every year, so that that data is still available to data users, to to uh, uh, decision makers in our country. So, so now, effective in 2010 and now in 2020, it's just a short form census. Every month, did, you were correcting yourself to say every year. 
No, every no. month and every year. So we're collecting data. We're out in the, we're all the, the time. Yeah. So there's a, there's uh, questionnaires going out to households every month called the American Community Survey, yes. and that, that's those longer set of questions that get, goes into more detail. And that's it's a sample of households across the country that are selected every year. Okay. Well, I, I'm I'm waiting for mine. <laughs> Yeah, it's only two and a half percent every year, so it's a very small percentage, but we're able to publish statistics based on the American Community Survey. And that goes out in the mail, obviously. Correct. It's, it's very similar to the census in that it's in the mail and people can respond online as well to that. So there's a couple of things happening with the pandemic. I want to know how the Bureau, Census Bureau is dealing with this. Well, we, we do have, there's a mortality rate. There's people that are dying from this pandemic. And so I, what does a household do when someone is deceased after April 1st, 2020? So the population count is based on the, who was living at your address on April 1st. So if the individual lived there on April 1st, then they would be counted at that, that address, regardless of what happened to them after April 1st or even on April 1st. So if a, a baby was born on April 2nd, they would not be counted with the Correct. health. If someone passed away on March 31st, they would not be counted. But if they passed away on April 1st or later, they would be counted. And if a baby was born on April 1st or earlier, they would be counted. And if they're hospitalized, they're not a resident. How do, I can't remember that box. So if there's a, a contingency plan for that. If someone's staying in a hospital, they're still counted at their, yes. their residence, correct. Right, because that, that was happening, I'm sure, on April 1st, especially in some places. Mm -hmm. So tell us then, you're talking about uh, June 1st is when the field people go out. Are you still, Jeff, looking for more applicants right now? This is, this is just early May. Are, are you still needing more staff? So we, we are still recruiting, and it's a really simple application process that's done all online. It's at 2020census.gov forward slash jobs, and people can still apply. It's about a 30-minute online process, um, and we will be finishing our, um, our hiring during May to prepare for that June start. And... You were talking about you've got the physical distancing, social distancing built in, but it doesn't matter when some states open up certain kinds of things. I mean, this is an essential service, sure. so it may right. be that it has nothing to do with any any directions it's, coming from individual states. You're, you're correct. It is an essential task, the, the census, but we are also working closely with federal, state, and local health officials. With we're working with the, the state governments and local governments to make sure that we're, we're staying in line with, with their protocols as well. So we may start June 1st, we may start a little bit later in June, but, but we are planning right now to start across the country June 1st. And are there areas in, in California, and mainly thinking of Orange County, are you, do you have enough uh, employed, enough field people, or are you still really this is a pitch you want to make for people to seriously consider. So uh, we're, we're in pretty good shape with hiring. We haven't, we haven't finished our hiring. It's been put on hold as the operations have been. So uh, we encourage people to, to apply. Um, and then we will be finishing our hiring later this month in preparation for that, that June start. Okay. 
So given that there are some new ways of reaching out to the public with your field people and all that, so tell us, Jeff, about ways that you or your, the, the civic organizations, the, the activist groups, how everyone is enlisted here, that you are creatively redoing how you're reaching out to the public for sure. the sure. ultimate and completion rates. So, yeah, so ultimately we, we work really closely with our, our census partners because ultimately they're the ones, they know their constituents. They know their, their customers. They're, they know the best way to reach them. So we've worked really closely with them. And a, a couple examples. Uh, yes. Los Angeles Unified School District is, is one of the largest school districts in the country. And they actually are, uh, they sent out a text and, and, a, and a phone call to everyone, all the, the parents of students in, in the, within their school district to fill out the census. So that's one thing. Additionally, we have a, a close partnership with the Mexican consulate in Los Angeles, and uh, we actually had a we we had a Q and A yesterday with Mexican consulate online. Also, we have t actually today is a social media event where we're working with media across the region, across California, to put out a message on their social media: Twitter, Facebook. Instagram, et cetera, um, to actually across the entire country to um, encourage people to fill out the census on their social media platforms and using the hashtag 2020 census. So it's, it's for everyone. So we will actually want to encourage you to do the same thing as well, if you could. Well, okay. I will, I will be doing that. I'll, I'm consider me up enrolled on that. Awesome. And, and I have to give a shout out to one I'm personally familiar with is uh, Faye Hazar, a partner specialist working in Orange County, working in Irvine, and I can give her number folks, 213-308-3725 for uh, any suggestions or offers of help or more eyeballs and ears on this whole project. Well, I wanted to let's see we're 63 per 63.7 completion in orange county that's your that's your best county in the state no it's it's not the it's not the highest it is one it's one of the top though it's one of the top three or four we have a few that are a little bit higher so we want to make this a little bit of a friendly competition yes competition. up in the bay area we have a couple counties san mateo that is at 65 percent 65.4. I'm just kind of, I'm going to, we have an interactive map at 2020census.gov that anyone can go to and they can drill down and look at the, the self-response data at the, for their city or for their county or for their, even down to a census tract area. So I'm looking here in San Mateo and, and Santa Clara County are slightly ahead of Orange County. So go Orange County. Let's, let's oh. catch the Bay Area. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, uh, while we're trying to do that, you mentioned the Mexican consulate in LA. We also have one in Santa Ana in Orange County. Are you working with them as well? You know, I, I'd have to get back to you on that. I, I, I have a list of all of our partners here. We have 50,000 plus partners across our, our region. So, but it's, wow. it's, I, I can get back to you on that. Well, no, I, that's a question for Faye. We'll keep, we'll keep right, her yeah, that. We're working together on this, believe me, because it, so I wanted to give you an opportunity to 
I'm not sure if it's picking up my mic. So I'd like to give you an opportunity. You've given us the websites where people can follow the progress and that they can, they can go to the website to, if, uh, to, to fill out their census, correct? Yes, yeah, you can just go to 2020census.gov and you, it's, it's, again, it's 10 questions, it's less than 10 minutes, it's really simple, it's, it's confidential, it's, it's safe to, to fill out your census. We, federal statutes, specifically Title 13, dictate that we cannot uh, share individual census records with any government agency, any private company, public company, organization, or any individual. So um, there, everyone's census data is confidential. We don't even ask the citizenship uh, question. We do not ask about immigration status for the 2020 census. We do not ask about income. Uh, we don't share that. We can't share the data with uh, the IRS or immigration or the housing authority. So it's safe and it's simple and, and it's important. Like I said earlier, hundreds of billions of dollars are distributed to communities across the country every single year. And this is one of the, the pillars of our democracy to assure that we're all represented in all levels of government. Well, Jeff, to be absolutely fair about that assurance that you endeavor to give all of us, that it stays with the Census Bureau, it's not shared, I'm going to speak for a lot of constituents that are pretty creeped out about norms being broken, uh, some very strange things that are taking place on national leadership in the federal government. And I don't know, I think it's a hard sell assurance for you to offer that the data that you're collecting, that it does remain with you and there isn't something in the uh, you know, in the executive branch that isn't moved around for other use. That things are, norms are very, very different in 2020. So I, I, how can you, how can you make an ironclad assurance that you know that this is going to be data that stays with you guys? So the, the census has been done 2020, 2010, 2000 going back. It's been done through different administrations, through uh, Republican and Democratic presidents. And that, the Title 13 has always been honored. Uh, it's been taken to the Supreme Court, and it's and Title 13 is a strong law that restricts and forbids us from sharing the data. And I can assure you that that we take our oath very seriously, not to disclose personal information of individuals. Okay, well, that's that's a huge thing because of how various critical things are being managed. And I, I know it's, it's in the back of a lot of people's minds, or if not in the front. Well, as we're closing, Jeff Enos, could you take this opportunity, let's use, using your best FM radio voice, you can give our listeners a pitch, a kind of an elevator speech for why they should complete the census sure. in 2020. So the census is extremely important. Hundreds of billions of dollars every single year are distributed to, to our communities across the country based on census data. If we're not counted in the census, our communities are underrepresented in that funding. The census is very safe. The data is protected. It's not shared with anyone. It's not shared with any government agency or any company or individual. And it's simple. Less than 10 minutes. It's 10 questions. 
and you can do it online at 2020census.gov, over the phone at 844-330-2020, or you can fill out the paper form and send it in. And we encourage you to do so. The sooner the better, and let your friends and families and neighbors know through social media to fill out their census as well. We, it's so important that we're all counted. Let's, let's get this done. Well, thank you very much for that. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're talking about it's a, a big media blitz day that we're recording this interview at, but thanks for taking the time to be on Community Radio with us today, oh. Jeff. Oh, thank you, Claudia. Thanks for helping us get the word out. Thank you. My guest was Jeff Enos, Deputy Regional Director for the U.S. Census Bureau, LA Region, overseeing operations in seven states. The deadline for completion is October 31st, 2020. We'll return after a station break with Michelle Musaccio to talk about the work of Transforming Justice Orange County, addressing the pandemic's spread in our local jails as it spreads in jails throughout the country. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Michelle Musacchio, here today to talk as an affiliate of Transforming Justice Orange County about the pandemic's spread in our local jails as it spreads in jails throughout the nation. Judging from a few groups' conversations, not everyone has an assignment in the age of COVID. This segment will definitely post those individuals with something they can take on now. Michelle herself is a very tapped-in community member in the broadest possible sense here in the region. We bring up her work with Transforming Justice Orange County so as not to confuse her as a spokesperson representing her other organizational affiliations. She completed her undergraduate degree in biopsychology and linguistics at Barnard College and her PhD in genetics at Harvard University. She previously appeared on the program about local school system news of the time. She comes to us, hunkered down in her home, up the hill from mine in Irvine. Welcome to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Michelle Musacchio. Thank you, Claudia. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here with you, as much well, as, as close as I can get to you. <laughs> exactly. Well, instead of my asking how you're doing, that I'm directing to all my guests, I'm really going to want to direct it to how are those incarcerated doing? Because as if we've ever questioned whether our penal institutions were operating on a strictly punitive premise, then it could not be any clear at this time. So let's talk about the conditions the incarcerated are facing this first week of May 2020. Well, Things are not looking so great for those who are in jail. As you may know, Orange County has a jail system. We don't have any prisons here and um, in the county. And as of May 1st, they're really uh, grappling with the COVID-19 infection at a rate that is greater than 40% of those tested. We are looking at 168 people inside the jails who are positive for COVID-19 out of a total of 387 who are tested. And so how many deaths 
have taken place? Do you have that number, Michelle? There are no deaths that have been reported from Orange County, those who have been incarcerated in Orange County. But we are only in two weeks of of reporting right now. Okay. okay. And but they are they going to be disaggregated that you know of from from the overall deaths of the county that we're getting out of the Orange County agencies? Uh, they don't get disaggregated until we actually call the Orange County Health Agency and ask for it. That is uh, it is not on the Sheriff's Department report for COVID-19 as of yet. So um, we have not confirmed any, nobody's reported any. Um, I don't know when we will be hearing exactly so that about may be, the deaths. Sorry. So that may be a, something that Transforming Justice of Orange County may be making a part of the charter is disaggregating this so people have a very clear picture of just how lethal the spread of COVID-19 is in our jails. Yes, that's, that's one of our, our goals is, is we are here to really report on how things are going on in the jails. And we will be, we don't have the capacity now to have a daily um, output, but we do refer people to the Orange County Sheriff's Department. But the testing is up to the sheriff and the healthcare agency combined. And the determination of who has symptoms and who doesn't, who gets isolated and who doesn't, is um, not set by any policy except for reporting within the jails. We also don't have a report on the number of staff and sheriff's deputies who are showing up positive. That is something that, no, the numbers I just gave you is only for those who are incarcerated. So, we know that this has got to be affecting the sheriff's deputies. Um, I do believe there was- And their families. Was, and their families. Is certainly, they have to go there every day. This is not something um, that they can avoid. However, it has been since March 25th, um, the sheriff in a press conference made it clear that anyone who uh, was incarcerated in the jails and who was exhibiting flu-like symptoms or who tested positive are going to be kept in isolation. So from everything that we hear, um, those individuals are in isolation, completely separate from any other individuals, which it poses a, an entirely different issue about what they're doing inside the jail. That is, a, a, it poses an entirely different issue for what it means to be in jail on a parole violation or for not being able to make bail. And as it's been pointed out on a number of other media coverage, that the jail population is not the most sympathetic of groups. So it's going to be a narrative that I understand that a number of grassroots are working on so that people get more context of, of what is the reason for those that are detained in our local jails. So, and you were talking about the conditions. There's either, there's the quarantining in isolation or yes. there's a lack of proper physical distancing or, and you're talking about the supplies available to the detainees. The testing is the, do you happen to know with your work with Transforming Justice Orange County, whether the available testing supply is for both employees and detainees? 
I don't know anything except that the sheriff's department is working with the Orange County Healthcare Agency in uh, obtaining the tests. And the number of tests that are available from the Orange County Healthcare Agency is determined by the director. They were uh, working on something like having at least 100 tests per day at the beginning of last week. And I think they're, they have ramped up to an availability of 600 tests per day. And how those distribute among the general population, among the uh, jail population combined, either incarcerated or, or staff, I don't know the breakdown of who they're testing. But one thing I do know is that if someone needs to be hospitalized, they will be hospitalized in an Orange County hospital, a general hospital. Public they are, hospital. And they are being right now. We're, we're hearing well, that from press releases and press conferences. From what I see, I don't know of any hospitalized Orange County incarcerated person right now. All I know is that each one of them that has tested positive is in isolation within uh, primarily um, the breakdown is given out by the sheriff's department. And at the current moment, there are 98 who are being held in the intake release center. There is a facility, Theo Lacey. There are 46. The, we are presuming, based on the sheriff's guidelines, that these are all kept as isolates. And there's one in the central men's jail. There is zero in the central women's jail. I don't have for you currently the total population you know, combined in all those jails. But yeah, nobody has been, um, that I know of, is in the hospital. But uh, that's something that okay. we need to, to, to know. They may have been, uh, it has happened before that uh, Orange County, when, when an inmate is ill, uh, they've been released. And then thereafter, they're not being tracked. That's something we, we are going to have a community briefing on Thursday coming up, and we will have those numbers there because... We being the uh, Transforming Justice Orange County. Not that is. We the, that the is. county, the, the yeah. press and everybody. Okay. Yeah. We'll so know from, exactly how many are hospitalized and, and released because we're really looking here. The numbers I'm giving you is what is happening in the jail right now. So I don't have the full picture. Um, and as I said, I'd have no picture of quite how many um, sheriff's deputies or, or other staff are have been infected. But at this point, we're looking at a, a huge rate. If if this was representative sampling, okay, um, you're you're looking at over forty percent. So that means that if that's the case, then over forty percent of all inmates are infected. But this is not random. This is only testing those who exhibit some sort of symptoms. So you are skewing it to those who are, are testing positive. Are confirmed, yeah. However, you don't have a picture of all of those who are carrying it, are asymptomatic, are you know not in isolation, and are passing it to each other. I mean, as we've been getting information from within the jails, we have access to a hotline where people are able to call and if they choose to share it with us, we learn about it. And what we have, I have a, among others, a story of a 59-year-old woman who's inside. They were, had been issued an N95 mask, and that was then taken from them as of uh, first week in April. And she wrote 
a non-medical mask has been issued. It makes no sense at all. I felt safer with my month-old N95 mask than the one that's been given me that has a tag that reads that this company makes no warranties, either express or limited or implied, that the mask prevents infection or the transmission of viruses or diseases, says. So that's one of the reports. We're basically dealing with them. We know that they are issued for free, a small hotel bar size of soap for the week that they're expected to use for washing their hands, their entire uh, hygiene from going from place to place. If you are uh, going to a meal or going anywhere within the jail, you have to be able to wash your hands. Any surface that you touch, you're going to have to be able to wash your hands. You can't control who it is that's touching a given surface. Um, and you, many times, the whole point of jail is you don't get to control where you are and how you interact. You're being told where to go. So those hazards are pretty pretty clear and that 40% of only confirmed cases, then there's a much larger number and the exponential increase of everyone exposed is let our imaginations roll. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Michelle Misakio, speaking as an affiliate of Transforming Justice Orange County about the conditions in our local jails that require our attention, frankly. So the district attorney and the sheriff have levers they can pull as far as early releases for those incarcerated. So could you give a very quick thumbnail sketch of the governor has allowed for a little more liberal term of a 90-day earlier release. Where are the DA, Stott Spitzer, and Sheriff Barnes now focusing in the levers they have at their disposal to, to deal with this spread of this pandemic in their jails? Well, to give you an idea, um, from the beginning of this pandemic, the sheriff had the power. It was a permissive power that was given in a by a judge's uh, court document that allowed them to release people within 60 days of their release date. The sheriff's response was to release people within 10 days of the release date, as well as some medically vulnerable people within 60 days of the end of their sentence. Visitation now is suspended indefinitely, and that's an issue. And volunteers, religious leaders, and other other program staff are not allowed inside. That is from the from the outside. What's happened is that the sheriff has been petitioned to use his full power to release all those within 60 days of their release date, plus anyone, regardless of release date, based on their vulnerability. Because we want to give the picture. We want to put this like in health, context. Their health vulnerability. Health vulnerability, exactly. Yeah. So if they, if they um, have hypertension, if they have asthma, if they are pregnant, these are certainly the older population is um, more vulnerable. They're very distinct guidelines. What makes someone COVID vulnerable? And we want to let people understand this is not just a bunch of people that we've just disposed of permanently. Jails are part of a transitory process in the carriage of justice, right? It's a right. storage place before you've gone through due process. 
you're held in a jail. It's, there, it's meant to be a place where people are coming in and going out. That's before COVID. Our case and our situation and those who are inside are asking, okay, that's fine. That's the standard. When you're in that case and you're about to be processed through justice, should jail be a death sentence in the midst of that? Like, do you have a death sentence step? Well, that's the thing. When we were getting coverage from jails all over the country where it's not a matter of we're sympathetic to somebody who's committed a crime. It's the context is, it's, and, and we're concerned about how the district attorney and the sheriff will characterize these people. And if you're, if it's saying somebody who's dispensing drugs near a school, and it turns out as a Washington Post, I think was posting, that person had 21 grams of cocaine and they were near a community college. It's like, there's, it's all in the way it's framed. And I think one takeaway I'd like from your covering this with us today is for listeners to understand that there, there's so much nuance that is getting brushed out of any kind of coverage, and it behooves us to understand that. So we're talking about the conditions some more, and you're saying that there are uh, supplies that are now being withheld. There are phones, video phones, that any incarcerated person may have now been blocked because of some retribution for them trying to offer to the outside world what's going on inside for requests for certain personal protection equipment. There are, there's retribution for the kinds of things that keep people sort of keeping it together in their detention that are, is that how they're being dealt with. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about what we can do on the outside to help with what kinds of pressure we put on. Yes. In fact, even if you take the whole punishment and and if that's the role that's happening, that's not what we're challenging. We are just talking about what it is um, that people who are inside, what do they want in this environment of COVID um, and what are they being provided and what capacity does the jail have to release those in the interest of public safety, that right. is the general public safety. This is not about, uh, hey, we found a nice, uh, you know, a quick way out of jail. That, that's, that's entirely not what we're looking at. Which we're is how it's been at, phrased by the DA. Yes, exactly. And Actually, it was, that's, that's absolutely true. Verbatim, yeah. So let's talk about... Let, let me tell you what it is. All they want is the ability to maintain social distancing practices they want to have sufficient cleaning supplies. We have reports of diluted cleaning supplies that they have no personal protective gear. And the, the protective gear that they did have was changed out to gear that is really absolutely, it says right on it, this won't stop a virus. They want more testing. Certainly that's something that absolutely has to be done. It has to be randomized tests within there. So you give us a report because they have pursued not a, you know, on March 25th, uh, Sheriff Barnes made it clear that he has pursued not a a policy of release, but the primary policy is that of isolation. And it has been, if that is the case, then every infection since March 25th is a policy failure. And at that point, we were in 
low double digits of the number of people who are infected. Now we are up to 168, and with doubling times of infection can be very, very fast. We're, we're going to enter next week in the 200s. They need to have free calls so that they're not completely cut off from the friends and family. As you know, everybody who is positive is in isolation. They have no one. They are not with anyone. This is an extraordinary measure of punishment while you're waiting to pay a fine or while you're waiting to say why you didn't show up at a parole hearing. We want them to have basic programs and support. Those are the things that were taken away, like access to chaplains. The majority of people who are in the jails do have a home to go to. It's a myth that they're just homeless. They actually, the whole point of jail was that they are going to come back into our community. They have a home. And we feel that going to a home where it is essential for them to stay safe from the virus, way to keep them alive to allow them to move forward in their justice process. But it is not due process of justice to keep them in a place where they're in mortal danger. The people in the jails are people that are from our community, going back to our community. They have value. They're, the whole point is to get them integrated and move on with their lives. And here we are basically slamming them into a wall. So Michelle, let's go to the legal challenges to the status quo. The American Civil Liberties Union filed a suit on April 30th against the sheriff taking up this, the cruel, unusual punishment and disability discrimination going on. So that's one piece. There's also, since the beginning, uh, the sheriff's department has had clarified again and again, both from federal district court plus the state court, that the sheriff's department has the power to release many more than they have. Now, it is true that at the time of his press conference in March, Don Barnes had already been releasing quite a few. They'd stopped the intakes as well. And so that they've reduced the population close to by about a third. Is this an effort to just to separate somewhat? Is that part of it? The uh, that's that's Partly? the idea. If you, okay, you okay. cannot keep those people. But the idea, again, is if you're in the justice process and you are not being given justice during that process. I mean, that's, that's simply... That's the point of the challenge. That's there, the yes. point of the challenge. And we have had the public write petitions to go ahead and, and say, did- look, use your power. The best we have is the DA just showing pictures of people who've been released and using them as boogeymen, saying, hey, this is the kind of people you're being released. These people are within 60 days of their release date anyway. Jail is intended to let you go home. You do your work, you get processed, you go home, you go to trial. That's how it works. It's not supposed to be you know, if there's a failure of keeping the kind of people that you don't want on the streets or in your community, that's a different issue. We're talking about you cannot put these people in a, a place where they are in fear for their life. The Human Rights Watch has a report out saying this is an absolute travesty. The epicenter of infection, that is the place in the world where you are more likely to be infected than anywhere else since 
late March, has been in the U.S. and has been in jails. And so we have know, models. I want to get yes, to this point. But we do. do have models that are not all that exotic. The district attorney in San Francisco County, Chesa Boudin, has been able to keep his infection rate numbers pretty low. So can you briefly speak to that model, how it might be something that other jails can apply in other counties? And it's the same thing that you and I are doing by staying home. They can flatten the curve. They can do certain practices, which is what we've been asking to be able to do. And that's the contention that you cannot do those practices while in the jail. One thing that Chesa Bodan did is put them out of the jail and he's effectively flattened the curve. That has been a success. So where are links that listeners can go to to add on to the petition to support the families that are outside? What are some specific measures as we wind down this interview? There is a petition to demand that the Orange County jails release people and prevent the spread of COVID-19. That is on chispaoc.org. And under petitions, there is one called Demand That Orange County Jails Release People and Prevent the Spread of COVID-19. That's an active position. And as you know, ACLU has a lawsuit suing for release of 500 inmates in Orange County. You know, those who are interested in this can email us at info at transformingjusticeoc.org. And that we will have a community briefing on Thursday, May 7th at 6 p.m. So after your work at home, you can do a community briefing at home. And, you know, the main thing is to, to keep watching the news. You'll, you'll see on Fox News pictures of people and a lot of fear-mongering. And you'll also see out there the Washington Post has a national opinion. So it's been covered on KUCI and certainly a lot of other media platforms that UCI's Charles Kubrin debunks the myth that releasing detainees creates an uptick in crime. She's got done excellent work on that. I want to thank Michelle Musacchio as an affiliate of Transforming Justice Orange County. And thank you for all that you're monitoring and following up on because there are so many assignments coming at all the grassroots activists to try to minimize the huge hit on public health in this pandemic now. Thank you so much for being on the show, Michelle. Not an announcement, but a commentary with which I wish to leave you. I called Ed Hamada, manager at our nearby grocery store recently. I wanted to cover on the show the extent to which his employees are affected as essential workers during the COVID pandemic. He declined an interview for this platform, so then it became an opportunity for me to express to him our appreciation for what they're all enduring. That was that. The next time I picked up my IPA, buttermilk, produce, and soap, I locked eyes, traced a smile over my face mask, and thanked everyone of those stocking, cashiering, sweeping, and directing our bumbling traffic. It seemed to land. I recommend all shoppers do that and reverently so. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, UCI epidemiologist extraordinaire Andrew Neumer is going to tell it like it is. 
examine where we are, where we're headed or aren't with this pandemic. He's fitting us in between all his worldwide media appearances. I'm already thanking him. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you have to do today's fiesta, please be smart with that Cinco de Mayo bit, okay? <laughs>